What is going on? Happy Wednesday. Pete Callender here, News Talk 1110 wbt Thanks so much for letting me be a part of your day. I appreciate it. We're going to get into uh, critical race theory today because I haven't done that in a while. And there was a big news conference yesterday up in Raleigh. The lieutenant governor, the superintendent for public instruction, the Senate president pro tem, they were all part of this news conference, uh, which of, the, uh, of course then prompts the uh, leftist teacher union communists to be like, and I, by the way, and I don't, I don't just call everybody on the left communists. I get, you know, all right, I need to explain that. There are people that are actual communists, right? They, they, they literally believe in collectivism, communism, that sort of thing. And uh, as a political philosophy, as an economic system. And I know this because I listen to them. I hear them speak. I see some of their social media profiles and the posts and the things that they celebrate, the things that they trash talk. And so I identify them with this philosophy, with this ideology, because they adhere to it. They are proponents of it. I don't use it as a slur. I mean, in so much as the ideology is a slur in and of itself, that's not my fault. Like, if you call me a free market capitalist, I'm going to say, yes, I am. Absolutely. <laughs> if you you call me a federalist, I will say, yes, I am. Absolutely. If you call me a collectivist, I'm going to say, no, I'm not. That's, you know, that is offensive. I am insulted. But um, for folks on the left who are full-blown communists and exhibit all of the uh, the trappings of communism, then I'm going to call them that. It's an easy way to identify their political philosophy. And I say that as one who was schooled in the studies of political science. It's not really a science, but it was, uh, nonetheless, I was schooled in this uh, in the university down in Rock Hill at Winthrop. That was my minor. It is still, uh, it still kind of hacks me off. I had enough credits for a minor in philosophy as well. I could have been a double minor. Could have been a double minor, but they did not allow it. They did not allow <laughs> Only double majors for some reason. So I was a mass comm broadcast major at Winthrop, and then the political science, and I chose that one. I thought it would be a little bit more valuable on a resume than philosophy. But honestly, the philosophy classes have come in very, very handy. What with our discourse now on critical race theory. So we're going to get to that. I've got audio from the press conference. I also pulled uh, a bit of a, a segment from a podcast that Glenn Lowry hosts. Glenn Lowry is uh, uh, a professor of economics, acclaimed uh, as such. And he, um, who is he? Professor Emeritus now. He's kind of semi-retired. I want to say he is at Brown University. And John McWhorter, who is a linguist, he's a professor of linguistics at Columbia, and uh, he's got a sub stack now, but they've been doing a podcast on YouTube or a little show on YouTube. They've been, I say little, it's very popular. Uh, they've been doing it for several years, and uh, they call themselves the black guys at bloggingheads.com or something. That's the name of the, the organization that all these different podcasts live under. And they talked about, they do, they, they talk often about critical race theory and the rise of this anti-racism, this religion of wokeism. So I've got a clip from that uh, you're going to want to hear. First, let me get to some of the CMS numbers here because it's back to school today. You probably could tell because your commute took like seven hours longer <clears throat> than it normally does. 
Uh, so CMS is welcoming back over 143,000 students, according to WBTV. A total of 2,355 students are enrolled in virtual schools, which is not the same as remote learning. And students will need to apply through CMS's student placement process. Virtual school is only being offered for kids in grades 3 through 12. And if you applied after August 19th, you're going to get put on a wait list. Masks are required for all the staff, all the students, all the visitors, regardless of your vaccination status. Which is interesting. I will get <clears throat> I will get back to that. Um, the district says students who are in close contact with a person who tests positive do not have to quarantine if they are wearing a mask and not showing symptoms. It's science. The district says students who are in close contact, so within the two-meter buffer zone, which wasn't actually based on real science anyway, but the two-meter buffer zone, the six-foot, that's where where the six feet comes from. It's two meters. Came out of Europe. Anyway, two meters, the six-foot buffer zone. If you are in close contact with somebody within that six feet and they test positive, you do not have to quarantine if you're wearing a mask. And as we learned from the study conducted by the researchers at Waterloo, which is where Napoleon is buried. Uh, I believe I said that the other day. Napoleon's buried there. <laughs> I feel I had to put the rim shot in there because Ryan thought I was serious. What? <laughs> Napoleon is not buried at Waterloo. <laughs> How do I know that you weren't serious the other day? I, it's a joke. I've never heard that joke ever. Well, I made because I made. I've heard. I've heard. You were here for the creation of the joke. Oh, okay. So now everyone's. Can I use that? Can I go out there to my other job tonight and use it and hopefully have someone laugh and go, ha ha? Yeah, you can do that. I've heard the anybody who knows what. I've heard the Grant's tomb joke, like who's buried Grant's tomb, like that's same concept. No, no, it is. (laughs) No, (laughs) he is not buried at Waterloo. He was buried at Waterloo, but he's not buried at Waterloo. Was he buried at Waterloo? That's where he lost. That's not where he was buried, though. He wasn't he buried. Do you on... understand the, the turn of phrase I'm using? He was buried at Waterloo, ah. but he was not buried at Waterloo. Okay, all right. Ha uh-huh. ha. News Talk eleven ten ninety nine three WBT WBTV's story at WBTV.com says that Charlotte Mecklenburg School District officials say that students who are in close contact with a person who tests positive will not have to quarantine if they're wearing a mask. Now, as you heard earlier in the week when I went over the study from Waterloo before Ryan distracted me about <laughs> Napoleon and jokes, hey! um, the Waterloo researchers found that cloth masks, which most people are wearing, but cloth masks that most people are, are wearing incorrectly, particularly the children, right? Wearing incorrectly. Only good if you wear those things perfectly, you can block about 10% of the aerosols out of your face. That's the research. That's what the science and data is. That's what they said. 10%. If you've got one of the highfalutin fancy N95s or KN95 masks, you're at 50%. That's the best. Unless you're going to go like full respirator, like moon suit kind of thing. No, like 50% is about what you can get. 
And what the Waterloo research also found, which for some reason isn't getting the kind of publicity that the mask stuff got, because the mask stuff, that's all over the place. People are like, oh, yeah, look, if everybody's masking, they're recommending masking and, oh, 95 masks. Oh, we need to get the 95 masks. Like, even if you get the 95 masks, that's still just 50 percent. And that's better than nothing. Don't get me wrong. See, I'm like... I'm not automatically by default an anti-masker. I'm not. I was supportive of it at the very beginning. I was like, okay, we have no idea what this is. Don't touch anything. Spray stuff down, whatever. Um, and then they were like, okay, it's actually not on the surfaces. It doesn't really transmit that way. I'm like, okay, well, I'm never washing my hands again. No, I'm kidding. I still do that all the time. But you didn't have to be as worried about it being left everywhere, right? Unless somebody's like hacking into their hand and then puts their hand on a doorknob. And then you come along and open that doorknob as well. Like, that's nasty. And you're going to get probably other stuff, especially if you start rubbing your eyes afterwards, whatever. Um, I, I make it a mission, like particularly when I'm out at a restaurant and I got to go to the bathroom, to never touch, like, anything that's in the uh, the bathroom. I don't touch the doors. Like, if I have to touch the water fountain, uh, the, 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 uh, the spigot, if I have to uh, turn the water on, I will, like, I use paper towels to touch all that stuff. I don't touch anything in there because people are nasty. So um, the Waterloo research says that the masks that are cloth, if worn properly and fitted correctly, will block about 10% of your aerosols that come out. Everything else just escapes all around the, the mask. And that's a properly worn mask. The... Uh, the N95s is about 50%. Now, what they also found was ventilation. And I spent some time on this the other day, right? That ventilation, modest, modest ventilation is actually more effective at limiting transmission than even the best masks, which means what? You're at 50%. So you can make an argument from a policy perspective. You can go around and round about the policy of Dewey, you know, mandate N95 masks, whatever. You want to have that debate? Okay, because it's kind of comparable, right? But the cloth masks, I mean, forget about it. 10% versus 50% just by turning on a fan in the room? Like, that's literally what we're talking about. Just put a fan on in the room. Because they actually did studies as part of the research, and there's uh, out of Japan about these uh, the, the micro droplets that suspend in air, and they show you what happens when you have a room with one door. You can put essentially two fans. If you if you have a room and it's only got one door, you put one fan that's like a a, a tall t- a tall fan, you know, and you blow that in, and then you take it. Or I'm sorry, you blow that out. The tall fan blows stuff out, and then you get a small fan like a desktop fan. Put it on the floor and blow air in, and that'll circulate the air and suck the rest of it out. Right. Even if you do that, it'll cut the, 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 the amount of time it takes to turn over all of the air in the room in half from like 40 minutes down to 20 minutes. And if you got another door, if you got cross ventilation, it'll take about seven minutes to clear that room of smoke. That's about how long, without a fan, just the cross ventilation breeze will do it. Why are we not talking about ventilation? And so anyway, I raised this only because I find it interesting that the schools now say, well, if you're both wearing masks, cloth masks, I believe, right, you don't have to quarantine. So we're relying on 10%. Kids with the 10% mask and a parent or teacher or, you know, TA or janitor or whoever, right, like they're they're wearing a cloth mask too, and that's a 10% mask. 
Is that, but now you don't have to quarantine? The science is different now for some reason. Now you don't have to quarantine because that's actually been one of the biggest problems with the shutting down of schools. It's the quarantining of the people. It's not that there are like massive outbreaks. It's that someone tests positive and then everybody around them has to quarantine, right? That's been part of the the problem for the uh, uh, over the last year. We'll see how the school year goes. Along these lines, I ended up in a bit of a discussion on the Twitter machine earlier today with Travis Fain. He is the capital reporter for WRAL TV. And Travis and I have had our go-rounds in the past. He usually, he's a drive-by media guy. He'll come out, he'll spray, you know, and then he runs away. <clears throat> so that's kind of what he does. But he he retweeted the story that I did yesterday. Not my story, but it was a New York Times story about the plastic barriers. You remember? That putting up all these plastic barriers, particularly in schools, messes with the airflow. It disrupts normal ventilation and creates these dead zones where viral aerosol particles can build up and become highly concentrated. He tweeted that out. And I said that the Waterloo study found modest ventilation efforts are more effective than masking as well. I do not understand why ventilation is ignored as a key weapon in the fight. And he said, mark the calendar because we agree. Although I've got more coming on the Waterloo study, and I don't think the conclusion is quite that strong. Directionally correct, though. So here's Travis, member of the media, respected, trusted journalist, right? Pumping the brakes. Whoa, 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 whoa. Let's not let's not trash talk the masks so quickly now, okay? But I was looking at the science and data, not so much him. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. I'm Pete Kalliner. It still sounds weird. It's like I spent 10 years doing reporting here, and so you would always, like, lock out WBT News. Like, like I just I feel the need to say that after my name. It's, <laughs> I just can't stop it. Um, all righty, so I had this argument over this Waterloo uh, research, Waterloo University, I think. I think it's in Canada. And... Um, it found that modest ventilation, even modest ventilation rates, were found to be as effective as the best masks in reducing the risk of transmission. Now, here's the problem. If you are invested in masking, if you've been telling people to mask, or if, you have, if you're a member of the media or a politician or just like some really loud, obnoxious person on social media, then like you're invested in the masks. It's almost become a security blanket, like a psychological crutch. And um, you don't know what to do. This is called cognitive dissonance, right? You don't know what to do. Your brain literally cannot decipher what is being told to you in this research. And this is actually the power of real science, right? Science says, hey, look at this research, and uh, you got the ventilation, and you got these masks, and if you can only pick one, it seems like a better pick to choose the ventilation. It does. Because most people aren't wearing N95 masks. They're not wearing the best masks. And even if they are in a K-12 setting... Even if they are wearing the N95 best masks, they're probably not wearing them correctly. 
<laughs> if you've seen the people that I've seen, you know this to be true, right? Especially when you talk about kids, the younger, the worse it becomes, right? So if you're making policy decisions now, and this is why we have policymakers versus just putting doctors and scientists in charge and letting them dictate policy. They're only looking at the, you know, whatever the specific narrow focus of, you know, I don't know, their subject material or uh, whatever question they're examining. They're looking at that narrow focus. A policymaker should be looking at a wider focus. They should be incorporating different things. They have to weigh benefits and costs, right? You got to look at the ledger and you say, okay, well, we, you know, there's the, the scientists are like, we should lock everything down. Well, what's the other side of the ledger there? How much harm do we do if we adopt what this health expert is saying we should adopt? And then the policymaker has a decision to make. And it's, look, it's, uh, these are tough calls. I get it. I really do. I get it. These are tough calls. But when new information becomes available, you've got to adapt. And right now, I think we're at a point where people are refusing to adapt because now there's political consequences. And, and that's because people have assigned like this partisan political ideology to the mask in a way I haven't. And I'm not saying that like I'm better than everybody else. I'm not saying it like that. I'm saying it like you have to be able to adapt to this information. If you keep as your North star, this, and this is why I keep saying it by the way, which is, are we practicing battlefield medicine or are we not? That is a, that is an orienting question for me. This is how I sort of reset my, my frame of mind when I'm looking at new research that comes out. Because if the research came out and said, hey, look, cloth masks are actually wildly effective. They block 99.99% of coronavirus and only coronavirus. Like if they came out with that kind of a study, I mean, I would be skeptical because the claim is kind of preposterous, but I would look at the study. And if it was, if it was persuasive, if it was a, you know, randomized clinical trial, I would have to adapt because Practicing battlefield medicine requires me to do so. So when this research comes out and says, hey, ventilation, modest ventilation works better than the best masks. Again, we can have an argument about whether or not we should focus on ventilation and and move away from the masking of, you know, with the best masks. But I think it's pretty clear it shouldn't even be a question of the crappy masks, the cloth masks, right? The washcloths that people are basically holding over their faces all day in a K-12 environment, it seems to me like maybe we bust out some fans, blow them through the rooms, and keep the air circulating. I was in, I think it was Harris Teeter the other day, and I was walking through, and I was like constantly bombarded with with a breeze. It was fantastic, mainly because I'm hot-natured. But uh, also, I was like, this is really good air movement. Like, I could tell that they were blowing the air all around. That's important. That's important. But I, I suspect there are so many people who have become so invested in the masks, they can't break out of that tunnel vision. And so when this study comes out, now there's this hesitancy, as you hear from Travis Fain, the political reporter at WRAL, who I guess doubles as a science reporter. And I pointed out that this Waterloo research um you know talked about the ventilation being better than the masks. Uh, and he says Yes, but the study was a sealed room, and they added a HEPA, a HEPA filter to it. So modest is a key word. See, he's like, here he is, pump the brakes, let's minimize this. 
Now, he's not doing that for the, the cloth masks that came in at 10% effective, right? He's not pumping the brakes on that component of the research. No, no, no. Because Travis is all about the mask. Travis is pro-ventilation, too. He wants more of the ventilation focus as well. He says he's working on a story about this. But he's also very much in the masking camp. And so he's afraid of what people might take away from this research if it undermines the masking policies. So this was in a sealed room and they added a filter. So modest is a key word. Also, that line is from the press release, not the study. The study says the experiment suggests the idea. And that part is true. I said suggest was actually used in the abstract. In the very beginning of the paper, it says that it suggests that ventilation is better. However, as I am known to do in certain circles, I actually read the study. And so when I read through and I got to the very end, here's what it actually says. The results highlight that increased ventilation air cleaning capacity significantly reduces the transmission risk in an indoor environment, surpassing the apparent mask filtration efficacy, even at relatively low air change rates. And it goes on to say the results show that ventilation, air exchange or purification is effective in decreasing both the final saturation concentration and the time required to reach the saturation state. Tests performed with no mask at an air change rate of 1.7 and higher outperform cases with high efficiency masks and no room ventilation. Do you get that? So put people in a room, no masks, with ventilation, and they're going to be, the transmission rates are going to be lower than if you put people in a room with masks and no ventilation. Higher ventilation rates needed to ensure negligible aerosol buildup over prolonged occupancy. That is what is indicated. They say, they say this is indicative that the higher ventilation rates are needed to ensure negligible aerosol buildup over prolonged occupancy. At some point, folks, we need to figure this out before everybody goes back indoors, like for schools, for the holidays again. And this is not new. This science has been around for a long time. The Japanese were telling us this a year and a half ago. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. Oh, one other point here about the start of the school year. CMS is working to hire teachers, nurses, and school bus drivers. There are currently 135 teacher positions. How is that possible? I was told that teachers were leaving the profession in droves. Nobody wanted to teach in North Carolina. That's actually that's a very low number. I've been through those uh, the 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 pre first day of school news conferences that CMS does, and like usually, like they usually start like we're down a thousand teachers, and they virtually always get them filled. So uh, let me go over here to the phones and hello, Dean. Welcome to the show. How are you? Good. How are you doing? Hey, I'm all right. What's up? Hey, I just had a question. You know, we're, we all seem to be looking for the definitive answer um, in regards to this COVID thing. But I just, I have to question whether that's even attainable. I mean, I mean, we we're taught to, you know, question every bit of scientific or intrinsic type of evidence. And 
you know, and it seems natural that we would just, even even you or I would gravitate to whatever would reinforce our core beliefs. No? Uh, well, I mean, it depends on, I, I, I don't know if I'm following your logic on this. Um, you have the, you, you have agency. I have agency. We can choose to examine things with an open mind. You can choose to do that. It's difficult. Look, different personality types, people are built differently. And so some people, um, it's more, it's harder to do this. Absolutely. It's, they become more rigid, especially as we get older, we become more rigid. But there are different types of personalities, different types of, you know, the way people look at the world. Are you open? Uh, and that's like a creative type. And they're more open to stuff. But that's a more chaotic kind of uh, existence. And then you have, you know, the other side of that is the overly ordered and rigid type of mindset but those you know th there is a benefit to doing that like you're a good manager of systems and such so it just you have to you've got to challenge yourself if you are more of the uh, of the the rigid uh mindset there the ordered mindset then you've got to be willing to challenge yourself and to try to open your mind to examine things that might be uncomfortable or might go against what you think is true just for the but sake I, of examination. I listen, to, I, I listen to people that I all think are credible, and I think you're very credible, and, and you do an, an immense amount of research. But still, like you were just saying, everybody has different personalities. Yeah. So everybody's going to approach what you say from perhaps a different standpoint. True. I, I mean, I, I would think that the only, if you ask what's, what are the absolutes or the most scientific things, there's probably you could put them all on your one finger like death taxes and i don't know traffic reports or something like that <laughs> well yeah and th this gets but all right let me let me say it this way i reject the idea this uh this relativist idea that there are no absolute truths i reject that i'm, I'm not a postmodernist postmodernists re reject this stuff there they are seeking chaos i am not seeking chaos but i also understand that in order to have a functioning society, right, we have to un we, we all have to have some unified idea. The majority of us, not everybody, but the majority mm -hmm. has to have a unified idea of what is and is not real. Right. Okay. And yep. this is the problem with a lot of postmodernism is that they reject the concept, the very concepts, right, of what is real and truth. They, they, they ascribe those to Western philosophy and, uh, uh, and whiteness. Right. This is this is the battle. This is really at the heart of the critical race theory stuff that well, the left do doesn't want to argue. Out? What's that? How do you strip them out? How do you, you know, those those people from from your, you know, digesting and analyzing the facts? I do I it mean, with prolific use of the rim shot. Ah, yeah, okay. it's you don't so even realize like it's happening. It's it's all subliminal. So I play that, okay. and it's like, boom, it's now right into your subconscious. And bad Napoleon Waterloo jokes. <laughs> there you go. Dean, thank you for the call. I appreciate it. <clears throat> yeah. Well, and good Napoleon Waterloo <laughs> jokes as well. I am versatile. Um, just to wrap up on the COVID stuff, and then I'm going to shift, and I'm going to get into the uh, critical race theory stuff. Um, New York Governor Kathy... Hockle? Hockle? Hockle. Hutchell. Hutchell. I think that's how she pronounces it. Anyway, the new governor of New York promised more government transparency on her first day in office. And by day's end, her administration had quietly delivered it.
by acknowledging nearly 12,000 more deaths in the state from COVID-19 than had been publicized by her predecessor, Andrew the Awful Cuomo. New York now reports nearly 55,400 people died of COVID in New York based on death certificate data submitted to the CDC. That is up from 43,400, and that's the number that Governor Cuomo had reported to the public as of Monday, his last day in office. Quote, we are now releasing more data than had been released uh, before publicly so people can, uh, or sorry, so people know that the nursing home deaths and the hospital deaths are consistent with what's being displayed by the CDC. Yeah, that was always one of the problems Cuomo had, is that the CDC numbers were different than the state numbers. And so now the new governor is like, yeah, the CDC numbers were correct. Cuomo was lowballing the uh, nursing home and hospital deaths because that was his policy, because he did that. I mean, it didn't get him impeached or anything. That was for the gropey grabby stuff. But um, no, the you know you can you can kill tens of thousands of elderly people in New York State and um, and not be impeached. That's the real lesson here. That's the real lesson. The Associated Press first reported back in July on the large discrepancy between these fatality numbers. The count used by Cuomo in his news media briefings only included the lab-confirmed COVID-19 deaths reported through a state system that collects the data from hospitals, nursing homes, and adult care facilities, and that meant that the tally excluded people who died at home or who died in hospice or who died in state prisons or at state-run homes for people living with disabilities. It also excluded people who likely died of COVID-19 but never got a positive test to confirm that diagnosis. So there's that. <clears throat> Excuse me. There was one other. Hang on, hang on, hang on. There was one other piece I thought I had about COVID-19. Oh, yeah. Llamas. And a llama shall save us. A llama named Winter. Antibodies extracted from this llama. Apparently, lab testing revealed that it, it worked against the uh, Delta variant and it curtailed it. Yeah. Chief Medical Officer at Exavir, some, I don't know, some company, it's a spinoff of the VIB UGENT Center for Medical Biotechnology in Ghent. Anyway, they said the technology is a potential game changer, but would supplement rather than replace vaccines by protecting people with weaker immune systems and treating infected people that are already in the hospital. Reuters reports, quote, Unusually small llama antibodies are able to bind to specific parts of the virus's protein spike. And at the moment, we're not seeing mutations of a high frequency anywhere near where the binding site is. The antibodies show strong neutralization activity against the Delta variant. I mean, there is a slight, uh, yeah, here, they say there's some slight uh, side effects, which includes a desire to eat a lot of grass. But that's a minor hiccup in the science, I think. I'm just kidding. Some uh, breaking news. 
This is why I tell you at the end of every show, don't break anything while I'm gone. I do not want that stuff happening outside of my show. I want it to break during my show so I can put it together. Um, Nick Oxner at WBTV reporting that McCray Dowless, who was scheduled to be sentenced this afternoon on the federal disability fraud charges, not the ballot harvesting election fraud charges from the ninth district, from all of that, the ballot harvesting stuff. Um, not that. Right. He's going to, he was sentenced. He was supposed to be sentenced because he pleaded guilty to the federal disability fraud charges. He apparently had a uh, stroke and he is in the hospital. His court hearing was scheduled for 2 PM today. That is now not going to happen. Um, we'll give you more details as they become available. Andy says, my kids go to a private school and part of the health guidelines, the school received from, uh, the health department, not in Mecklenburg. This is from outside of our area. Uh, Andy says, um, the guidelines were to create many opportunities for kids to be outside. In other words, ventilation. I don't understand why they didn't make this one of the W's. I've been saying it for a year. Make it another W. You got three W's, just add a fourth. Then you got the four W's. Wind. Wind. That's very easy to do. Umbrella Ray on uh, the Twitter machine says, It seems like masks have become the equivalent to a Band-Aid for children when they bump their knee. No damage. And slight pressure from the Band-Aid may do a little, but uh, really it just makes them feel safe. It's theater that we use to make us feel safe. I think, yeah, to a large degree, especially the cloth masks, that's what the science says. That's what I said when the research first came out. Like, what am I supposed to do with this? You guys keep telling me to follow the science. You guys keep telling me that you're being guided by the science. Well, here's the science. What are we supposed to do with that now? Oh, I know. I know. I hear you. Just shut up. I got you. Was uh, the guy... Oh, I don't know if that's that's not correct. Um, Do masks create heavier breathing and therefore create more lung juice? Since the cloth mask... I think there's some connection here with the kids having smaller lungs and their... What are they called? ACE? The ACE inhibitors or the ADE receptors or something. They're not fully developed and that's where the, the spike proteins hit or something. So there's some really super sciencey explanation for the why the kids are uh, believed not to be uh, affected by COVID so much. I mean, could you imagine, by the way, could you imagine if kids were being afflicted with the COVID like the elderly are? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I mean, the, everything would be different. Everything would be different. All right. Let me get to um, this, to, to, to some of the sound bites from yesterday. Uh, the press conference that was held by Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson, his task force uh, that he set up to investigate indoctrination and the spread of critical race theory in North Carolina K-12 classrooms, put out its first report. The Fairness and Accountability in the Classroom for Teachers and Students, or the FACTS Task Force, which is very difficult to say, was formed in March this year with the objective of combating lessons and materials found to be inappropriate or politically biased. The 12-person advisory board for FACTS is made up of teachers, local and state board members, lawmakers, university professors, and other community members. A portal for the public to submit concerns and examples was created on the website at the Office uh, for the Lieutenant Governor. 
There were more than 500 submissions that were included in the original report, which uh, have been reviewed by Robinson's office as well as the task force. So here is uh, Mark Robinson from yesterday's press conference's opening remarks here. Whenever it plays. Any minute. Let me start oh, by saying this. And I want to make this plain. What, I, what we are presenting here today, this is not an attack on educators or education. All right? I'm going to say that again because I know there are going to be people who are going to characterize this as an assault on the teaching profession. It is not. All right. So the people that are making that accusation are the communists that are in the NCAE, as well as their water carriers in the Democratic Party and uh, members of the media. Those are the people making these accusations that you're attacking teachers. You're trying to stifle the best teachers. You ever hear the saying, like, you throw a rock into a pack of dogs and the one that yelps is the one that gets hit? Like, I got a pretty good idea of the teachers that we should probably be watching (laughs) when it comes to this kind of corrosive indoctrination. And by the way, I mentioned this also yesterday, that Bank of America, they've been running struggle sessions for their employees lasting almost a month, like 18 days of this garbage. And I'm not sure that the folks realize this, but... You have unleashed a virus inside of your your company. It's going to destroy you because that's what it does. That's what this, this way of thinking, that's what it does. And it is a way of thinking. And once you start putting people into this box and you start forcing them, you, you induce them to think of race in everything to view all things Through a prism of race, your company will be destroyed. It's going to go down now. It's terrible, but I didn't invite them in there. You guys did because you wanted to pay a bunch of money to get an indulgence and nail it to the front of your website that says, you know, we're not racist. We put all of our employees through anti-whiteness training. I mean, congratulations. I don't think it's going to be helpful long term, but like, what do I know? Why is this taking so long? What this is is an attempt to stop the abuse of the teaching profession by a few who are using that profession to put undue pressure on young minds to accept their way of thinking. That's what this is. This is not an attack on teachers. The overwhelming majority of our teachers are hardworking folks who do a fantastic job every day. They put their all into their jobs and we thank them for that. But those folks who are abusing that privilege of being a teacher, abusing that position, that they have, that sacred duty that they have to their students. Those are the folks that are abusing that privilege, and that is what this is about. It's about ending that. It is not about attacking the teaching profession. So I want to make that plain right off the bat. So this task force that we started, that we called uh, Fairness and Accountability uh, in the Classroom for Teachers and Students, or FACTS, It said about to answer one question. Is there indoctrination happening in our public schools? And after doing this report, and after doing this task force, the overwhelming answer, the overwhelming answer is yes, it is. Right. And this is necessary. This was necessary because the left and the media, but I repeat myself, um, they were arguing 
and asserting without evidence, because that's what you're supposed to say nowadays, they're asserting without evidence that this didn't exist, that this is all just, you know, manufactured by right-wingers, right? Like, that's been their argument, and this is why I equated it yesterday to election integrity and vote fraud. This is the same approach they they take even today. They'll say, oh, that doesn't happen. That doesn't happen. Then you give them examples of it happening. And then they shift, and it's like, well, it doesn't happen a lot. That's where we are now in this debate. So this is why the the uh, the collection and the distribution of the data is important, because we need to get past this first stupid defense of, it doesn't happen anywhere. It's not being taught in the schools. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. Got audio here from yesterday's news conference that the Lieutenant Governor of North Carolina, Mark Robinson, held along with the Superintendent for Public Instruction, Catherine Truitt, and the Senate President Pro Tem, Phil Berger. So here we uh, we rejoin uh, Robinson, Lieutenant Governor Robinson's opening remarks. Maybe, if it'll play. We have received okay. calls from all over the state. We started receiving these complaints even before we started this task force. And as of the date, we have received over 500 submissions from parents, students, and teachers who are concerned about some of the things that are being taught, in our, not just taught in the schools, but absolutely forced onto students and teachers. And they want something to be done about it. And that's what this task force was designed to do. Start the process of trying to answer that question and then set us on a course of how do we deal with it. Some of the examples that we found in this thing, and I won't cover many of them, I'll just give you one example. There's an example of a book, uh, called, I believe it's called George, that's given to fourth grade students. And in that book, uh, this student, this person, this character in this book questions his own sexual identity, he questions his sexuality, and even talks about removing his genitalia. Uh, that's the exact kind of stuff we're talking about. Those are conversations that should be had at home uh, among parents, amongst uh, parents and children, not in our public school system. Another example is our governor's school, where they use a gender flying unicorn to answer questions, and, and <laughs> students are asked to answer questions about their sexuality. That does not have anything to do with education, folks. That is not the road we need to be on. And it's not a question of if this is happening. It is happening. So this report is not the, the, the end. This, we don't purport to have any solutions for this problem in this report. This report is the beginning. Right. The beginning of taking a serious look at what's going on inside our public schools because parents and teachers and students all across this state are crying out for a solution to this. Now, this does not stop, I believe it was Laura Leslie from WREL, from asking, well, what are you going to do with this information? How are you going to penalize teachers now? How are you going to uh, go after them? Like, what are the ramifications? After he just said, like, we're not presenting solutions here right now. We're just telling you we've identified that this is occurring. This task force starts that, 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 uh, that, proce this pro that process, excuse me. 
People have asked me all the time, is indoctrination real? Are you imagining this? We are not. People all across the state, as I said, are concerned about this issue, have experienced this issue, and they want some answers, and more than that, they want something done about it. And this shouldn't be a left or right issue, all right? This is not about teaching the right. This is not about teaching the left. This is not about teaching the middle. This is about teaching our children how to think, not what to think, and giving them the skills they need to succeed. And I would submit to you in far too many classrooms in this state, we are not doing that. The superintendent herself will tell you that we are, we are failing in an epic rate to teach our children the most basic part of education, and that is reading. In a school system that is failing to teach its children to read, there is no place for some of the stuff that we have discovered through this report. Now, I will say this now. Hang on. If we don't teach the kids to read, then maybe they can't read the books about the flying unicorns and the and George who wants to get the gender reassignment surgery. Ah, <laughs> yeah. Think about that. If they don't know how to read, then they'll never learn to be woke. The logic is undeniable. We need to get back to the business of education, and I hope that this report, this task force, will set us on that road, because that is what this is about. It's not about politics, it's not about left, it's not about right. It's about doing what's right by our children. All right, so that was Mark Robinson's first, uh, his opening remarks, and I did not uh, take anything from the Q&A. Most of the reporters were off mic, and uh, frankly, they weren't, uh, the, the, the Q&A wasn't as, I thought, valuable uh, as the opening statements. I've got Catherine Truitt, the superintendent for public instruction, and I've got Phil Berger's audio uh, uh, to come as well. Now, in this report summary, the task force identified six themes. Number one, fear of retaliation. Number two, the sexualization of kids. Number three, critical race theory components. Number four, white shaming. Number five, biased news and, uh, sorry, biased news media and or lesson plans. And uh, finally, six, shaming certain political beliefs. Those are the broad categories that the complaints fell under. Fear of retaliation. I, and by the way, I know teachers. I know quite a few teachers, actually. And they will tell me, they do tell me, they are very afraid when they get run through these struggle sessions. They're very afraid that, you know, they're going to be out of a job or their workplace environment is going to become very hostile towards them or something. Like, if they don't fully participate, and a lot of them, I've had teachers tell me this also, that they will go on to like these Zoom things or whatever they were doing last year, and uh, they'll just basically mute everything. And so they're there, so they get the credit, but they're not going to participate. But there is a fear of retaliation. There is a sexualization of kids, critical race theory components, white shaming, uh, shaming of certain political beliefs, and then biased news media and or lesson plans as well. Uh, so... That's in the report. It is publicly available at the lieutenant governor's website as well. Right now, what's available is an update from the WBT News Center and Mark Garrison.
Talk 1110-993-WBT. 704-570-1110 and 1-800-WBT-1110. Oh, it's Stan. Hello, Stan. What's going on today? Hey, how are you doing? Hey, I'm all right. What's up? Yeah, I, I just want to get a point across, not just for schools, but for almost everything the government gets involved in. Why did we think that we, the, uh, the government controlling public schools and taxing us, and right now it looks like we're paying, if you can even get the figures, near second figures, we're paying $25,000 per pupil, and there's no other competing option. I mean, yeah, you can compete if you have money left over. What's going to change this is market-based schools that can compete with the government. Mm-hmm. And that's true with anything the government gets involved in, even Social Security. If you took 15%, of which is what people are paying right now into Social Security Medicare, and you just took half of that and invested it nominally, you would get millions of dollars. And yet everybody retires only on Social Security because those dollars don't get to go compete anywhere else. Mm-hmm. It happens any time that you get the government involved in any service. It always sucks. True. I agree. <laughs> and, and it's, and, and it's I don't know what, what, trying to get the government to change the schools to what you want when you're not paying for right. them. It's like trying to put a square peg in a round hole. Right. This is why it, it, it's harder than doing it right. But once you, you, if you get it done, the square peg in the round hole don't look like what they used to. I have been saying uh, from the beginning of the pandemic, but even before then, uh, because I am not a supporter of the K-12 government model. I never have been. Well, I shouldn't say never, but I haven't been in probably close to 20 years. Um, I think it does more harm than good. I think that the school system, the way it is built, is entirely inadequate for what we need it to be. And um, the only people that are trying to protect it are people who have a direct interest financially in seeing it continue um, at the well, expense of well, the they, children. And, 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 and here's something this needs to know. When they call them Marxists, they're actually correct because one of the planks in the Communist Manifesto is a free government control, public education for all. Sure. Well, it it makes sense. If you go back and you look at the history of of the government K-12 model, right, it is a factory model, and it served a purpose. It was to get people who were in the fields, right, into the factories, and they needed to know a little bit of something so they could read the warning labels on the machines. I'm just kidding. They didn't put warning labels on machines back then. But uh, but they needed to know some, you know, how to read a little bit, how to do some math and that sort of thing. And uh, so the model is a factory model in that, You're born on a certain day. You're then put on this conveyor belt. And for some reason, we are to believe that everybody matures at the same rate. So you should all be learning the same thing. And everybody's interests are the same. And there's some really, um, it's kind of sad research out there, but also really uh, enlightening research that shows kids, so many kids test like off the charts brilliant. And then they go to school and we kill it. We kill the creativity. We kill that part of the brain that uh, makes the kids test so highly because we're trying to fit them into these molds because that mold works for us. And because, well, well, because you don't see them as individuals with right. freedoms and liberties, you see them as units of production for the state. Correct. And that, well, and that was that was that's what the Prussian model required, and that's why we adopted it. Right. And there are too many people that are alive right now that are older, uh, you know, Gen Xers and above, that have this nostalgia for the way high school and like, oh, the high school years and like all of these things. And look, don't get me wrong. They were great memories that I had. But the system is broken and it has been for a very long time. And if the pandemic didn't prove it to you and the CRT stuff isn't proving it to you, then I'm at a loss to understand what else it's going to take 
for you to for people to get their kids out of this system because that's the only way this changes. And I, I I asked the state lawmakers the same question, and they're you know they're opening up with some of the vouchers. Like if if they weren't, I mean North Carolina, I think missed a, a golden opportunity to run very far, very fast on the voucher system to get more money into parents' hands to let the money follow the kids and let parents decide. And anybody who's like, oh, well, I don't know if that could work. Well, you do it for colleges. You do it for Medicare. Why can't we do it for K-12? Hey, you should be able to. And I, I think that's the change that need to be proposed by somebody who can actually help us get it done. Yeah, and they have expanded. I will say they have expanded to some limited degree over the last year, the voucher program, and they're going to try to do some more of it and putting more and more money into it. Mm-hmm. But they're but they're so afraid. And look, this is what I was talking earlier about adapting to change. The K-12 model does not suit our needs in our modern society. It just doesn't. And you can't look at the performance of the school system around America and say, yeah, this is optimal. This is really working. How could you say that? Where, I mean, what's the stats I saw for the last year? Are they even testing kids now, right? But they, they're they like, well, half of the kids are below uh, uh, grade level on reading. Half. Well, well, That's yeah, well, insanity. In, or- in Oregon, they just banned banned the testing of kids yeah. in schools. And I'm sure you wouldn't want to go have your heart surgeon operate on you that couldn't pass the test. Well, and now there's this push because of critical race theory and and the postmodernism and neo-Marxism, the march through the institutions, now you've got this entire line of thinking of, uh, for example, math is racist. Like, this idea, these concepts that, like, there is no truth. And, like, there, these concepts are incredibly dangerous. You mentioned the, the, uh, the heart disease example. The other one is bridges. Like, you're going to start graduating engineers that don't believe that 2 plus 2 equals 4? Then but, bridges are going to start falling. Like buildings will collapse if these are nope. the people in the future that are in charge of building things based on math. Because when you hit reality, like, reality doesn't care about your critical race theories. Yeah. I, it, I, it's no brainer to me and you. Yeah, Stan, I appreciate the call, sir. Thanks so much. Um, kind of went down the rabbit hole a little bit on that, but I, you know, it's fair. Like I'm not, a, I'm not a supporter. Of the K-12 model. I remember Neil Bortz, the libertarian talk show host out of Atlanta, he used to say this, and it really is true. If you go to a Catholic school, what do you think you're going to learn about Catholicism? You're probably going to learn that it's A-OK, right? You're probably going to learn that it's pretty cool. Just, I've not been to Catholic school, um, but I suspect that's the case. I don't think they're going to be doing a lot of Catholic bashing in Catholic school, right? Likewise. I don't think you're going to go to a government-run school and learn that government is terrible. I just don't think it happens. I was never taught those things. I was taught by generally liberal teachers and really liberal professors. I still remember the professor of history down at Winthrop when uh, the day after Bill Clinton won in 1992, the 92 election, and she came into the class and her hair was all disheveled. She obviously was up partying all night, and she came in, sat on the desk, and Big old smile on her face, and she said, we won. Right? Like, that's the kind of experience that I have had virtually my entire academic life, K through college. And so when people come forward with these stories about what's happening in the classrooms, and now it's been turned up to 11 out of 10, it's like, it's not that hard for me to believe that the stories are actually occurring, that these things are occurring. It is for the left because a fish doesn't know it's wet. To them, they're like, well, why wouldn't everybody celebrate Bill Clinton's win? 
That's just normal, right? Daily Wire. DailyWire.com headline. Comedy Central cancels The Office Diversity Day episode. (laughs) (laughs) Which is perfect. Chef's kiss. Perfect. The episode is famous. You ever seen The Office? Well, if you didn't see the diversity episode, you're not going to see it now. The episode is famous for its politically incorrect storyline, which features the boss, Michael Scott, played by Steve Carell, forcing the paper company staff to participate in a hilarious racial diversity seminar where he speaks in an exaggerated Indian accent and then does his own version of Chris Rock's notorious stand-up routine about different kinds of black people. <laughs> and that was the point. That was the point. And then he did, remember he they had a uh, Yeah, like Kelly, sla- Ke- Kelly slaps him, like, in the right, episode. in the episode. And then he's got the post-it notes where he writes all these various, like, I'm going to write these different, like, ethnicities and races on them. Like, the whole point is that Michael Scott is a complete imbecile socially- awkward, ignorant, like doesn't know boundaries, any of this stuff. Like that's the whole point. And he's the manager and all the people that work there are generally, you know, normal to, well, well, not Dwight, but a lot of the others are mostly normal. And he has them all write down on the post-it notes or he writes down on all the post-it notes, uh, races, ethnicities. And then he's got one that says Martin Luther King Jr. (laughs) And then he has everybody put them on their forehead so they don't know what their post-it note says. And he tells people, now go around and treat each other like you would if they had a that post-it note on their forehead. Like that's who they were. So if there's and like Stanley, Stan, the black guy or a black guy in the office, he's like, he's got one that says black. <laughs> and so like <laughs> Because he got randomly picked for that one. And, like, that's the comedy of it. Oh, my God, you people are humorless scolds. Humorless scolds. A society that cannot laugh at each other other and itself. If we can't do this, how do you expect to fix actual problems? How many episodes of All in the Family would have have aired in, in today's society? None. Zero. Never would be made. It would never be made. And I've never seen any of the episodes, so I can't even talk uh, really? about. Yeah, no, I, I I never found it. Like I, I was too young, I didn't get into it. And then by the time I was watching more TV, you know, no, I was well, I was I was watching Quantum Leap, <laughs> Miami Vice. That's what I was into. Um, but I I don't I I'm serious about comedy being a really important thing in a society in a culture. We have to be able to mock ourselves and to laugh at ourselves as a society. It's the way that you get to broach difficult subjects and point out things that are generally true in a non-offensive way without being not offensive. But I mean, because jokes can be offensive, obviously, but in a way that is not aggressive and nasty. Right. You can make jokes and you can get people to to examine things and think of things in a different way. Chris Rock. I'm a huge fan of Chris Rock, but I'm a I'm a fan of a lot of comedians. I am. I like a lot of comedians. I don't even have to find them funny to respect what they do, to respect their their craft, right? And how they build their show and how they uh, how they construct jokes. I don't have to find them funny to appreciate that. 
I'm a big fan of the observational type humor. But Chris Rock was able to, I mean, there's a reason why things that he said now, what, 15 years ago in that stand-up routine are things that people still quote today. Because there are truisms there. Dave Chappelle, same thing. Jerry Seinfeld, Jim Gaffigan. Those are my favorites. Those guys are basically those. those yeah, but I see others that are, you know, that are good, too. <laughs> um, but, yeah, the fact that they're going to cancel, they're going to cancel that episode. This is according to Barstool Sports. The cable channel has quietly omitted the episode from the rotation. Um, do, do, do. Rear Admiral is the person's name who is the host of a podcast called Spittin' Chicklets. Notice that the second episode of the season one was missing. Yeah, because it was, it was, it was very early on. It was the second episode. He, so he asked Comedy Central about its absence and said he got no reply, even though the standard corporate boilerplate reply about uh, potentially offending people. Oh, so he didn't even get a reply. It's just not in the rotation. So right now we're working to confirm, but by we I mean somebody else, is working to confirm that it is indeed out of rotation. So the other thing about that episode is it was written by Larry Wilmore. A black man. Hilarious. I do like Larry Wilmore. I did not like him. His, his show? Yeah. Yeah. It was kind I, of, I tried to give it a try. I did too. Didn't do it for me. Because he was he is funny. Yeah. He's got that... That dry, deadpan delivery. He came out of... Uh, he was in that episode, too, by the way. Was he? He was the guy that they brought in. He was the, <laughs> he was the diversity officer. Or like the corporate guy. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Classic. A classic episode that's now been tossed into the wokeism ash heap. Yeah, remember that... I'm assuming they're going to have to get rid of the one where Michael Scott... Is this the same episode where he kisses Oscar? Or is yeah, that a different episode? That might be the same episode. It might be the same episode. I don't remember. Maybe that's what did it. Where He's like, he's like I'm now going to kiss Oscar because Oscar is gay. And so he's like, I want to show everybody that I'm not homophobic. So Oscar, get up here. Come up here. And he's like, please don't. Everybody's, and all, the, all, like, all of the office workers are like, Michael, please don't. No, Michael, don't. Do. He's like, I'm going to kiss Oscar now. And Oscar's like, please don't, Michael. <laughs> right, that's, the, like, that's the absurdity. It's highlighting the absurdity of these types of policies and this kind of thinking. And this was, I mean, how long ago was The Office? Ten years ago? Was that when the, the series first started? I'm glad we watched it. It's a classic. Hope you can still get it. I hope it's still available someplace. My goodness. Um, there was another piece. I'm going to get back to the audio, by the way, in the next hour. The audio from uh, the... The news conference held by Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson, because um, we've got audio from the um, superintendent for public instruction, Catherine Truitt. I've also got Phil Berger, the president pro tem of the Senate. Um, but during so after they did this press conference, there was a Senate education and higher education committee meeting. And the bill that the Republicans are running to prevent teachers from promoting these toxic ideas from promoting the toxic ideas um, that was being debated in the Senate committee. And it did pass through on a voice vote. It's house bill three twenty four. Um, and in this committee meeting, and I don't have the audio of this because I was 
on the air. I couldn't uh, get the audio. But uh, State Senator Jay Chaudhary from Wake County, he's a Democrat, he said, This week marks the first week of our kids going back to school. I feel that we should be spending time honoring our children. Oh, good grief. Honoring our children? Really? Honoring them? Instead, we are spending time debating a Fox News-driven issue that's more about fear-mongering. It's turned into a fishing expedition of our public school teachers. Mark Robinson said, we didn't hide in the dark and do this task force. We didn't ask to do it. Parents, teachers, and students of the state demanded it. And to sit here and call it a Fox News-driven issue when I stood with teachers who have cried because they feel like their jobs and livelihoods and professions have been threatened, for you to call it that is an insult, is an absolute insult. That's the way that Carolina Journal reported that exchange. Over at Greensboro.com, apparently, Robinson stormed out of the room. He stormed out. I don't have audio of it. I am sorry. I don't. Maybe somebody will be able to request the audio archive from the General Assembly. That's what you got to do to get that. Um, I just found out about it this morning, so I have not made such a request. But he stormed out. Mad. Fiery. Thank you, Dave. So there is a there is a uh, video of Mark Robinson storming out. <laughs> uh, thank you, Dave. I'll have to check into that and see if we can find it. Oh, wait a minute. Hey, producer Ryan, you need to go look up AP Dylan on the Twitter machine and uh, find a video that she has posted or a link or something about Mark Robinson storming out. We'll see if, we'll see if Ryan is any good at this producer in thing. And uh, see, see if you could find I think it's, I can find you her. Uh, he got it already. Oh, you got the Twitter account. Okay. Um, thank you, Dave. Uh, this is from the last six months. That's the Twitter handle. My birthday is mid-September, and all I want is my ringtone to be your science and data. (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe I'll make it available for folks. Um, So, yeah, so Robinson, Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson goes to the um, Senate Education and Higher Education Committee meeting and uh, to talk about the the bill that they're running, and he's... uh, He's not a sponsor of the bill, but he's sort of the, you know, taking the lead on it. And this state senator from Wake County, Jay Chaudhuri, 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 I think is how he pronounces it. Um, he says that uh, this is all just a Fox News driven issue that's more about fear mongering and it's turned into a fishing expedition of our public school teachers. And Robinson said, um, that's not true. And uh, he says, for you to call it that is an insult, an absolute insult. You know where my office is, and you know that this task force is going on. When did you contact me? 
when the Republican chairman of the committee interjected to stop the conversation from escalating, escalating, Robinson stormed out saying, all of this is driving me nuts. <laughs> uh, Chaudhuri said, Chaudhuri said that afterwards that he was taken aback by Robinson's comment. Oh, please, counselor. Were you really? No. He accused Republicans of political posturing going into the elections. The bill is, is, is in search of a problem that does not exist in our classrooms. That is a lie, folks. What is happening right now is we are all being gaslit by the likes of Senator Chaudhuri. Chaudhuri. Robinson said that he found Chaudhuri's remarks disrespectful. He chose to criticize the work that my office has done without ever reaching out to provide his input or concerns. Um, let me play now. This is... Uh, the superintendent for public instruction, Catherine Truitt, at yesterday's press conference before the committee meeting. Without a doubt, there are excellent and incredible things happening in our public schools throughout the pandemic and even just since yesterday at the start of the school year. There are thousands of teachers leading and guiding and mentoring North Carolina's public school students each day. And I know this with certainty because I've witnessed it myself across eight months on the job. But as a parent, a former teacher, and as the state superintendent, I am disappointed by the examples that have been brought to light and and shared with me. I'm also sympathetic to the students and parents who have experienced what can only be described as a pressure to conform to ideas that are not their own. No student should ever feel marginalized. No student should feel anxious about his or her place in school. As a profession, teaching is a kind of paradox. Teachers have very clear rules and guidelines that they have to follow most of the time. They've got bell schedules, deadlines, federal and state compliance. Teachers aren't even allowed to leave the grounds to go to lunch. But when a teacher is in the classroom with their students, they have enormous latitude in what is said and done. The vast majority of teachers use this latitude very responsibly. But in reading this report, it's clear that some have used their personal and political beliefs to influence students rather than to educate them. There is a distinct difference between those approaches within the classroom. And while I know that most educators understand this nuance, it's important to have guardrails in place for when and if a line is crossed. Normally, I believe that local control is best, but when it comes to what's appropriate and not appropriate in our schools, what's good for a student in Onslow County is good for a student in Buncombe County. The legislation that Senator Berger will talk about today is part of that conversation. Today's legislation does allow for hard truths and robust conversation to unfold in students' classrooms. It still allows for challenging conversations to occur 
about the ugly parts of our nation's past. But this bill creates safeguards to ensure that multiple perspectives are considered and every viewpoint is heard without fear of marginalization or retribution. I don't want this report to be about chasing down teachers and issuing reprimands. And I don't think that's what the Lieutenant Governor has in mind. But it should be about jump-starting conversations on how our education system can better support teachers. And it should have us asking how we can better prepare every teacher for the challenging discussions and hard lessons that often unfold in our classrooms. And for those teachers who are listening, you all know that teaching is a profession where professional growth never stops. You are all ever evolving, constantly evaluating your craft and making adjustments as you go. That's what teachers do. And I know that not a day goes by that y'all don't lay awake at night and say to yourselves, what could I have done better today? Did I say the right thing today? Did I do enough? So in that same vein, teachers, I ask you to reflect on what's been shared in the parent emails that are part of this report. I want to conclude by thanking the parents, students, and teachers who came forward to share their lived experience. I thank you for your honesty and for your bravery. This is a moment when we recognize that better choices must be made. But I would be remiss if I didn't say that this is also a moment where we acknowledge that there are millions of people and current students across our state who've had incredibly positive and encouraging experiences in our public schools because of their teacher. And I know this firsthand because my three children are amongst those millions. All right, that was State Superintendent Catherine Truitt. We'll hear from State Senate President Pro Tem Phil Berger. But first, let's hear, uh, yeah, let's hear from uh, Boomer Von Cannon. Hey. Oh. All right, so the uh, Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson, along with the Superintendent for Public Instruction, Catherine Truitt, and the Senate President Pro Tem Phil Berger all held a news conference yesterday about this legislation that would prevent teachers from promoting concepts like one race is superior to another, which has gotten the Democrats very, very upset. They're very upset with this prohibition. Apparently, they would like to teach kids that certain races are superior than others. I don't know why. Maybe some folks could ask them, hey, why do you want to teach this? But um, Senate President Pro Tem Phil Berger talked about the legislation specifically and how it's getting run through, but also the work that the uh, lieutenant governor's task force has been doing in compiling the data, the reports, the anecdotes. Because at some point, all of the anecdotal evidence, when you get enough of it, you begin to get the, a general consensus or an, or an idea of what is occurring, 
right? The collection of all of the anecdotes becomes a body of evidence. So here's Phil Berger from yesterday's press conference. I think there are a few takeaways from this, especially as we hear claims from other lawmakers that critical race theory doesn't exist in our schools. Uh, First, there are an awful lot of submissions from concerned parents, but also from scared teachers. These are men and women who see this doctrine, critical race theory or wokeism or what have you, they see it seeping into the classroom. They're concerned about it and they genuinely fear retaliation for speaking out against it. Here's a passage from one teacher, a 14-year veteran in the profession, and she says, I think it's a she, uh, maybe a he, uh, anyone who speaks up is afraid they will be canceled or terminated because they have a different opinion. This is not the work environment we should be exposed to or the environment our students should be presented with when they enter our classroom. There are plenty more just like that one. Take these teachers Take these teachers seriously. They're raising a red flag about what they see in our schools, and they're doing so thinking they will face certain retribution. And second, don't tell me the doctrine doesn't exist. Don't tell me all these teachers and parents are just making this stuff up. The presentation given to students at the governor's school looks like something straight out of a Robin DiAngelo white privilege seminar. At the governor's school, they show students a picture of a person and label him the, quote, prince of privilege, simply because of his skin color and his sex. They hand privilege checklists out to their students. This is what critical race theory in our schools does. They instruct students to view everything through the lens of race and power reaching conclusions about a human being based solely on a photograph or a checklist. It's surface-level, race-determinative, everything nonsense. So don't tell us it doesn't exist. Here's another submission, this one from a parent. Quote, my child's freshman history class was told that if you were white and Christian, you should be ashamed. An opinion that doesn't conform to the woke culture is criticized rather than thoughtfully discussed. And another parent writes that her daughter opted to mute herself during most of the year of, of virtual instruction, watching silently as, quote, those that agree with the teacher's point of view got positive attention, while those who didn't were told to back down and were met with uh, the derisive comment some are going to try to make it hard on the majority of us who want equality for all. Don't tell us this doesn't exist. So where does House Bill 324 fit in in all this? I stood uh, here a few weeks ago and said that we cannot combat a doctrine by simple prohibition. And so we don't go down that path. House Bill 324 sets guardrails against the most extreme forms of indoctrination, but the only enduring way to fight back against critical race theory uh, and its presence in our schools is to shine a spotlight on it. When people are exposed to the substance of critical race theory and what it preaches, they don't like it. That's why organizations usually considered right-leaning are also 
sounding the alarm, not usually considered right-leaning or sounding the alarm. Senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, a left-wing think tank, wrote these words. These worries cannot be bludgeoned away by saying CRT has no influence and parents just don't want their kids taught about slavery. Parents are far more worried about their children being arrayed into hierarchies of privilege and oppression and encouraged to see everything through a racial lens than they are concerned with their children learning about historical incidents and practices of racism. And The Atlantic, far from a right-wing publication, writes, quote, any teacher actively promoting the concepts targeted by the North Carolina bill should meet public resistance. For lawmakers or parents to object to curricula that promote ideological dogma about race is neither illiberal nor authoritarian. All right, so that's Phil Berger, the president pro tem of the state senate. He's ushering the bill through. It went through the uh, education committee yesterday. It's got to stop in rules, and then it's got to be reconciled with the, uh, the House version, and we'll see where it goes from there. If it can make it to the governor's desk, I am quite certain Governor Cooper will veto it. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. So just because Democrat Jay Shadhuri, 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 Democrat from Wake County, I think that's how he pronounces it, um, just because he made the argument that Democrats and the media, but I repeat myself, have been making for the better part of a year that critical race theory is just some obscure, esoteric, legal theory conjured up in Harvard law back in the seventies and eighties. Nobody's teaching it. We don't have any examples of this. So now we have some examples of it. Still not really a thing though. And so what is the argument that we keep hearing? You just don't want to teach history. Well, I thought John McWhorter said it best in a conversation he had with Glenn Lowry while they were doing their YouTube, uh, blogging heads, TV podcast, um, I still, yeah, I don't like calling it a podcast because it's on YouTube channel. What are those called? A Ucast? A Tubecast? A Tubecast, we'll call it. So, uh, and you can get these for free, by the way. They do have a subscription where you get it earlier, but these are all online. Glenn Lowry Show is the name of the show, and it's L-O-U-R-Y. And they're both professors. And, well, here, I'll just play it. This was the conversation they had about the critical race theory. Uh, this was probably about a month ago. Critical race theory refers to certain weird but interesting articles written, you know, 40 and 30 and 35 years ago that argue for a recasting of what we think of as justice on the basis of what it means to be non-white or non-various other things in this country. All of it is you know, it's kind of deconstruction meets legal theory and you know, nothing wrong with it. I'm fine. It's critical you're, you're race theory starts as the mm-hmm. writings of the Derek Bells of the world and the Kimberly Crenshaw yeah, of the world. You know, all of that. Williams and where it used to be that you had only heard of it if you were people like us. Yeah. And now critical race theory and, you know, it's an acronym to CRT. I never thought that would happen. Now it is something that is in the schools 
And it has to do with, you know, putting the white kids on one side of the room, and the black kids on the other and teaching certain lessons and, you know, teaching that white is wrong, teaching that black is to not be precise, teaching that whites are the oppressors, teaching black kids to start being wary of their victimhood early on. This is happening across the country in many classrooms to varying extents, but it's there. That's referred to as critical race theory, too, because the people who promulgate this educational philosophy call themselves inheriting basic principles of critical race theory, which says, among other things, that for, for example, black people, our narrative as victims of white oppression is what defines us and is more important than the details of individual stories, such as success stories and the like. So all of this balkanization of white from black in particular, it traces to those writings, even though Kimberly Crenshaw and Derek Bell were not thinking about what you do to six and seven year olds in the classroom. It was right. a different time. They were different people. They weren't they weren't classroom pedagogues. Right. But still, critical race theory infected ideas are now being put into operation in whole schools. And I've been writing about this on Substack, turning upside down and being made these anti-racist academies where work by, for example, Robin DiAngelo and Ibram Kendi is put forth as basic texts. And a great many people find something wrong with what's happening in the schools, including some legislators who don't know a whole lot about legal theory, big surprise, don't know a whole lot about educational philosophy, big surprise. They're professional politicians. That's what they know about. And so there are these bills that are saying no teaching critical race theory in the schools. And this is where the the dumb stuff comes in. (laughs) There's this whole strain of people who are saying you can't say that you don't want critical race theory in the schools because nobody's teaching Richard Delgado and Kimberly Crenshaw in fifth grade, which is just such a debate team nonsense tactic. Or more people are saying, because critical race theory is calling attention to the basic racist nature of our society, and you can say that that is there, the issue is its extent, but it's there, because critical race theory is teaching America to be honest about itself. If you don't want critical race theory to be taught in schools, what you're saying is you don't want anybody to be taught about racism. You don't want them to be taught about slavery. You don't want them to learn about Sojourner Truth. And no one has said that. Or if anything, from what I know, one of the state's bills clumsily written could be interpreted as saying that. But that's not what anybody means. It's clear. And yet, noble people are arguing all over the place that if you say you don't want these anti-racist academy philosophies in a classroom that your child is in, what you're saying is that you want American history to be taught the way it was in 1925, with a waving flag, slavery not mentioned, and everything is just fine and hunky-dory. That is utter smoking hot bull And yet, there's this whole debate going on now where The left avoids acknowledging what's going on in these classrooms. They won't admit that all of these news reports spell something. Whereas, frankly, if there were two news reports of a black boy being shot by the cops, that would be considered an indictment of our whole national fabric and reflecting things going on in 50 states 24 hours a day. Exactly. It is the most frustrating dialogue because (laughs) no one knows what they're talking about. Go ahead. No, I was going to say they're intellectually dishonest. They're lying. Right. They're lying. I think, so. I think so. And I think they know they're lying. I mean, I think they know a who are they? They are the left. They are the activist, anti-racist uh, pedagogues uh, in the schools, in the universities, in the journalism profession. 
We're trying to shape the way that people think about race in this country, including children in public schools. Exactly. Exactly. They're lying. There's there is no other explanation. Surely Senator Chaudhuri. 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 Surely, surely he knows that these things are occurring because he represents Wake County. And in this report from uh, the lieutenant governor's office, it has a percentage breakdown of where the submissions were originating. And the largest percentage of submissions for a single school district came from Wake County Public Schools with 21% of all the submissions. You can't tell me this isn't happening. It is happening. Some of the examples are literally the thing that John McWhorter just talked about, where they separate kids, white uh, you know, uh, white and, and black kids, they separate them, or they do the, the privilege exercise where everybody line up in a row. Now, I'm going to read this list of things, and if it applies to you, you take a step forward, all right, and now we're going to run the race, and it's meant to show your privileges. Like These things are happening in schools. Heck, Charlotte Mecklenburg schools just paid, what, $25,000 or something like that to Ibram X. Kendi to come teach all of the leaders of the school district about his stupid, nonsensical philosophy. And they were all gushing over it. A year it took him to analyze that book. Here's the Cliff Notes version. White people suck. There you go. That's the Cliff Notes version of the of his book. All right. Kasabian. The Sabian? Kasabian. K-A-S-A-B-I-A-N. What is that? What's a Kasabian? <laughs> what is it? I don't know. It's the name of the band. Oh, it's a band? Yes. Never heard of them. Never heard the song. Never heard of them. I hosted a, uh, or I didn't host, I produced a, uh, a soccer show and, and uh, my host loved this song. Oh it was actually God. one of his opens. And it's a quick open. Okay. If you could never bring soccer into this show that would be fantastic <laughs> well just because i played it on a soccer show doesn't no, mean that... no it's too close you do know that no, we're going to have I want a, more degrees of we, separation we have a, we're going to have an mls team right down the right down the street <laughs> see i played soccer for the, three years so why the why are you all anti-soccer it's amazing how how defensive soccer heads get when you simply say you don't want to hear anything that has anything to do with soccer. <laughs> so you're just, you're just, you're just literally taking that song and just making it guilty by association because it happened Correct. to be one of my soccer old soccer hosts. <laughs> favorite, Correct. Favorite songs. Correct. And that's too close. <laughs> it's too close. <laughs> I am just kidding. It's just a joke, Brian. Hello. Welcome to the show, Brian. What's up? Hey, hey what's up? Hey, man, great show today. Thanks. The content was excellent, entertaining, provocative. Just a great show. Wow. just wanted to uh, make a quick point before your show ends. All right. The people who are espousing the, the importance of CRT are, uh, to me, it seems like a moral argument that they're trying to 
uh, put out there. How so? And I, my question is to those people who examine other people's morality, are we allowed to do the same to them? Can we examine how moral you are, and can we find issue with how you live your life as well? This is, and this is the uh, the dangerous flip side of this argument that I think a lot of activists are not uh, aware of, right? Which is number one, most white folks, and I am a white folk, so I feel like I can. Oh uh, yes, I feel like we can talk about this. Um, most white people don't view themselves as white first, right? Um, and now, now the critical race theorists would say that's because you are the oppressor class, you're the majority uh, race, and so that's your privilege that you don't think of yourself like that. But be that as it may, and even if I accept that as true, which I don't, but even if I accept that as true, it still remains the same, right? That that white folks generally do not think of themselves as white first and foremost, right? What happens when you start making them think of themselves like that, number one? Number two, if we are now to start ascribing characteristics to people as a class based only on race, what then do you think people start looking at when it comes to other races than white? Do white people start looking at, let's just pick a random kind of category and let's say, oh, crime. Do we start looking at crime and saying... Hmm. Well, wait a minute. If you're going to define all white people by certain characteristics, do we get to define all black people by uh, characteristics in the realm of criminal activity? And that is not a path because the data, by the way, the stats are not are not going to make that an easy defense for the activists. So is that really a pathway that we want to go? Do we want a consistent application of the standard? And I would submit, no, they do not. It, it's all about power. And they, and they will tell you that, by the way, the, the postmodernists and the critical race theorists, it's all from the same wellspring. It's all about power dynamics. Right. And that's that's what they're attempting to leverage. Um, and so they don't want to have those types of standards applied to them. And, and but no, it's it's a fair question to ask, Brian. I appreciate the call, buddy. Uh, good to hear from you again. Let me go over here to Jimmy. Welcome to the show. Jimmy, what's up, man? Hey, uh, great show. Thanks, um, you know, I'm black, and I have looked at this critical race theory, and what I get out of it is, all it is is, it's, it's telling the black kids, it's okay to be ghetto, and the fellow of the white kids, don't you join us? <laughs> so this, right, this this also raises questions of culture, right? And which, by the way, even suggesting now, if you start talking about culture, much like second reference of the day, Chris Rock's stand-up routine years ago that was quoted in the office, um, uh, uh, the the TV show, The Office, on that episode of the diversity training. Um, when you start talking about cultural norms, now this is a form in today's critical race theory discussions. This is now a form of uh, racism to even suggest that the cultural norms might play a role in the way people perceive each other and themselves in the society. And I, I reject that. Uh, Jimmy, I appreciate the call. I, I reject that. And and it's it's sort of like, what's a good example of it? Where, where people would, okay, here we go. This is a good example. Antifa, right? If you're going to go down to a protest that Antifa is putting on, and you're going to go dressed all in black, and you're going to wear a helmet, and you're going to have... Uh, you know, 
knee pads and elbow pads and chest plates, and you're going to carry a baton with you, and you're you know, going to have a gas mask. And if you're going to get dressed up like that, you are telling me something, right? Your exterior conveys a certain message to me, and that is you're part of Antifa Black Bloc. You are there to commit violence, and you are because that's the uniform of the Black Bloc, and that is the purpose of Black Bloc is to commit violence and to be indistinguishable from all of the other black blockers. So this way, nobody can get in trouble. If you get arrested, uh, you can say, oh, no, I was over there. I was somebody else. Right. So if you show me this, if you dress like this, you're sending a message to everybody that you are filling a or you. Yeah, you're filling a, a stereotype. You don't then get to pretend like I'm just here to peacefully observe. Uh, how dare you tell me that uh, my attire somehow indicates my motives, <laughs> right? Well, no, if you're going to dress the part and you're going to convey that to me, you cannot be upset when I believe you, right? This is the Saddam Hussein weapons of mass destruction argument. You can't be terribly surprised when people believe the projection that you're presenting. Racism is the lowest, most crudely primitive form of collectivism. This is not my original thought. You should know that because it sounds pretty brilliant. So it's not mine. This is Ayn Rand. Racism is the lowest, most crudely primitive form of collectivism. It is the notion of ascribing moral, social, or political significance to a person's genetic lineage, right? The notion that a, that a person's intellectual or characterological traits are produced and then transmitted by his internal body chemistry, that means in practice that a person is to be judged not by his or her own character and their own actions, but by the characters and the actions of a collective of ancestors. That's guilt by association. And that's unfair. It's unjust. It's unjust. Racism negates two aspects of a person's life, reason and choice, or mind and morality. It replaces them with essentially chemical predestination. Right? And that's what, that's what makes it unfair. Now, I will give you this from Richard Delgado, creator of Critical Race Theory. Page three of the book Critical Race Theory. The movement, the Critical Race Theory movement, is a collection of activists and scholars engaged in studying and transforming the relationship among race, racism, and power. The movement considers many of the same issues that conventional civil rights and ethnic studies discourses take up, but places them in a broader perspective that includes economics, history, setting, group, and self-interest, and emotions, and the unconscious. Unlike traditional civil rights discourse, which stresses incrementalism and step-by-step progress, critical race theory questions the very foundations of the liberal order, including equality theory, legal reasoning, enlightenment rationalism, and neutral principles of constitutional law. What does that mean? Neutral principles of constitutional law. That all people are created equal, right? And that you should be adjudicated 
equally under the law, that we are all equal under the law, and that it should apply equally to all. The critical race theorists say, no, it should not. And how do you determine what laws apply and how? Based on race. The lowest form of collectivism. So, no, it's not surprising that collectivists are pushing it. Stay tuned. Brett Winterbull is up next on News Talk 1110 and 99.3 WBT. Thanks for hanging out with me today. I do appreciate it. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. And uh, don't break anything while I'm gone.